We're going to continue our study through the book of John. Um, And this morning, we're going to be taking a look at a man who was blind and how uh, Jesus touched his life. Not only will we see that he healed him physically, but he also healed him spiritually. It's a, a fascinating passage, especially considering the situation we face this week with some of the rulings of the Supreme Court. Um, and I, I, I saw a parallel in the passage, um, and I pray it ministers to you. Let me uh, put some things into context before we get into the study. Um, first of all, uh, this is the first Sunday I've had the privilege to enjoy since uh, being sworn in as council member, and um, I was thinking about that. In the first council meeting, uh, you know, a number of folks were saying this has to be resolved and we need to do this and you have to do that. And uh, I, I, I had found out on a Friday I was elected and on a Saturday I had like four phone calls and 25 emails and, uh, I, and you know, citizens were calling me and uh, I hadn't even, I wasn't even official yet. Um, and, I, and I just thought, what have I done? Uh, <laughs> But I purposed in my heart that in the first council meeting, the Lord had, had shown me that um, people don't so much want to know about you, they want you to know about them. And, and I want to spend time getting to know the other council members. I've had the privilege to pray with all of them, my wife and I did. I've, I've had a chance to be with uh, two of the council members to, to pray with. And um, hearing the heart of some of the, the employees of the city, and, and uh, I have to say they're lovely people, they're good people. Um, we disagree on a, imagine a number of issues, but the Lord showed me, uh, especially studying, um, amazing grace, a, a book by Eric Metaxas on the life of William Wilberforce, who in the early 1800s, uh, was used by God to end slavery in the British empire. And he was ridiculed and despised for over 30 years. Uh, actually was almost considered a traitor when the French revolution occurred and, and, um, and and abolition was almost at the cusp of being, you know, passed in Great Britain. And then the French Revolution broke out, and then he became the laughingstock of, of the British Empire. But all of a sudden, in the latter years of his life, the stars aligned. Um, um, William Pitt Jr. died. There was a new prime minister that was installed. And, and, and overnight, everything aligned that... Um, William Wilberforce was brought to the forefront and abolition was established in the British Empire in a vote that was 263 to 16. And, and the entire uh, chamber, the parliamentary chamber, began to cheer. People who had vilified him and attacked him. But what was fascinating about the entirety of his life is even his enemies called him civil and kind. He never, he never spoke ill or was visceral. Never said those people. And, uh, he, you know, the Lord says even their, 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 his enemies will call him friend. And that was William Wilberforce's life. I've been deeply moved by that. That there are not enemies, there's opportunities. And we're called to engage that civic arena and to bring in the heart of Christ. And when you spend time hearing someone's story, you, you tend to have empathy and sympathy. And then you can speak truth to power, but it takes time to establish relationships. I, um, I'm also thinking too in this legislative aspect that uh, similar to the pastorate that just give me time and I'll have the ability to upset all of you. <laughs> well, it's the same in the civic arena as it is in the, in the pulpit. You don't seek to offend. 
but you, you, you know, I can't be bought because I'm already owned by the Lord. And, and the, the idea is when I put my head on my pillow, I'm right before God. That's my grandson crying. And so I, I would ask for all of us that we, we just ask the Lord for wisdom. Uh, this week, when the Supreme Court ruling came down, I got calls from um, a handful of Calvary chapels uh, and one other church that are exponentially larger than ours. And they were calling me, asking me, what is our approach? What do we do now? Which I thought was fascinating because I said, do you realize our church is maybe 500 people on a good day? And, uh, but they said, you've been doing this. What, what, do we, what do we say? How do we respond? And, and my point to them was, the ruling of the Supreme Court, um, a lot of churches are going to do what they call holy unions, where they will not... Uh, um, participate in a holy union until the couple has already gone through a civil uh, ceremony and have already signed their marriage certificate, then they can come to the church for a holy union, and that'll exempt the church from being attacked for its religious purposes, and they can hold to a holy union. And, and that's similar to what they've done in Europe, and it's a defensive posture. And, and as I told the pastors, I said, I'm not concerned for the pulpits, although that'll be attacked in time. My concern is for your congregants that are going to lose their businesses. The First Amendment is going to be under attack, and a new orthodoxy has changed where there's no longer an understanding of a freedom of religion. And so it's going to be trying times in America. This was a, uh, a catatonic shift in the culture of our nation. But that being said, I wasn't depressed this week. Maybe some of you were. I, I, I looked at William Wilberforce and, and, and in the midst of Great Britain and the British Empire, if you had seen what he had endured for 30 years, it made what we're do- dealing with look like a a walk in the park. Our brothers and sisters in the 1040 window in the Muslim world are, are, are watching massive massacres of their people. And they look at us and they say, why are you whining? And the apathy and the fear and, and the despair across the nation, it, it, it shouldn't cause us to be apathetic. It should engage us to, to action. And I was looking and I said, what is it going to take for you to lead your people? I told these pastors, I said, we, we've been given a representative form of government, 85 million evangelicals in America, 65 to 85 million, largest minority, 25% of them even, even bother to pull the lever. And in some elections, it's even half of that. 700,000 elections across the country. Most people don't know who their councilman is or their supervisor. And, and they think that there's going to be a silver bullet in Proposition 8 or the next president elected. It doesn't work that way. It's called hard work, engaging in the process, stepping into the midst of it, and speaking truth to power. Not the moral majority. We've already done that. Not the moral majority, but the humble minority. Where we seek to serve and to speak truth to power in a loving manner. But we can only do that when we engage in the process. And they were saying, well, how do you do that? What did you do? And I shared in the first service, and I imagine I'll, I'll offend some folks, and I have the gift of offense. <laughs> but in the course of the election, I was asked to go and speak to the log cabin Republicans. That's the homosexual portion of the, of the Republican Party. And I said I would. Right here in Ventura, I was invited as their guest. I was the second speaker. The first one to speak was uh, a homosexual man who uh, is the highest level of, of the federal government. He deals with foreign policy. 
he stood up to speak, articulate, um, dealing with foreign policy issues, talking about ISIS, talking about the massacres, talking about our policy. Fascinating, conservative, strong. And, and then as I'm getting ready to be introduced, he pauses and he says, I wanted to tell you, I don't expect Rob McCoy, Pastor Rob, to give his blessing to my marriage. He said, I'm not married, but even if I were to be married, I wouldn't invite him. I wouldn't want to insult him. He said, 90% of the men in my family are evangelical ministers. He said, I I wouldn't put him on the spot. I don't need him to do that. He said, we know what it's like to be the persecuted minority. And if we're going to allow the rest of the homosexual community to treat him and the Christians as a persecuted minority, if they're going to be destroyed, the next people in power will destroy us. He said, we need to stand for his First Amendment rights. Okay. And, and I, I was stunned. And then they invite me to speak. And I turned to him and I said, 90% of the men in my family are not evangelical ministers. And I said, since you shared about foreign policy, I would venture to use an illustration. He said, what is it? And I said, well, I look at conservative homosexuals as I look at Arab Christians. The Western world despises them. The Jewish world doesn't trust them. And the Muslim world kills them. And I said, I would venture to guess that it was easier for you to come out as a homosexual than it was for you to come out as a conservative homosexual in the the homosexual community. And they all began to cheer. And 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 I said, you could be for us a protector of the First Amendment if you truly believe in individual rights, inalienable rights endowed by our creator and you would stand in defense of those. And they were so moved by the presentation that they endorsed me. Now, some folks would think, oh, he's been endorsed by the log cabin Republicans. I'm not voting for him. Well, that's one of the reasons why we lose elections. We're single issue voters. If we don't stand together, we fall apart. And, and speaking, I told them, they knew my position. I said, I don't, I don't approve of, of a homosexual wedding. I would not ordain a homosexual. This is my conviction. And together we stand in an understanding in a pluralistic society of those rights that are endowed by our creator. And they agreed with me. That's pretty fascinating. And in addition, I had the opportunity to speak to a number of them, had great conversations. And what happens is when you step into a world like that, that we would tend to want to use the four walls of the church and throw bombs out and, and, and be angry and call them those people. The Lord said, go into all the world and go into all nations. Every nook and cranny. Bring light into the darkness. That their spiritual blindness would be opened. And, and when you spend time with somebody, you start to know their heart. And all of a sudden, you have a dialogue and a communication. Now, if you don't know upon which you stand, you'll be easily swayed and you'll waver. But if you can articulate your position, and I, I close with this. I said, your group should be the most pro-life group in America. They looked at me stunned. Why? I said, if as you believe that there is a gay gene, and now that we figured out the genome of man... And if they find that gay gene, as they would with a Down's child or anyone with a, a, a fetal deformity, nine out of ten Down children are aborted before they're born. I said, do you think that parents in America would keep that child? And you could hear an audible gasp. This is the idea of be prepared in season and out of season to give a reason of, of the hope that lies within you and to share that in a, in a manner where you're not attacking the character of another human being but you can speak truth into that, into that world. I'll tell you what, I'm going to get it wrong. 
And some of you may despise the fact that I stepped in there. I'm gonna step into stuff probably heavier than that. And I hope you do too. And we'll get neck deep in it. Because the, the deeper we go into darkness, the more the light will shine. We're the salt of the earth, the moral preservative. We're not the moral majority, we're the humble minority. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all. If you want to step into an office in the civic arena because you like the power and you want to exert it on others, don't do it. But if you want to step in so that you can affect power to glorify Christ, then do it. And you do it in a way that humbles and serves one another in the love of Christ. I pray that the message this morning would touch you in that capacity because the lesson itself deals with a man who was blind physically and not only got to see physically, but spiritually his eyes were open and he was dealing with the highest court in the land, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the black robes. And they're going to rule and they're going to excommunicate him. They're going to kick him out and and they're going to ostracize and remove him from society. All because he had the audacity to allow Christ to heal him and to testify of a Messiah. Why is that? Well, we'll see. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. John chapter 9. Get comfortable. We're doing all 41 verses. I don't want to hear any whining. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work as long as I am in the world. I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind the, the eyes of the blind man with the clay and he said to him go wash in the pool of siloam which is translated sent and he went and washed and the man came back seeing therefore the neighbors and those who previously had not had seen that he was blind said is not this he who sat and begged some said this is he and others said well it's like him it can't be him and he said wait a minute i am he Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay. You notice he didn't add the spit. He didn't know. (laughs) Made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. (laughs) Forget the fact I've been blind for 30 years. I can see you're more concerned with the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. And he was thinking, well, maybe this is a test. He goes, well, uh, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, 
But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. And therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. I like, he is of age, ask him. He was blind, he wasn't mute, he can talk. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this, is, this man is a sinner and, and they're invoking Joshua 7, which is, you're gonna, we want you to swear under oath in this court of law, what you, this is a testimony under, under the threat of perjury. Okay, legal terms. Verse 25, he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him again, what did he do to you and how did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you do not listen. (laughs) I was blind, you guys are deaf. (laughs) Why do you want to hear it again? I love this. Do you also want to become disciples? (laughs) And then they reviled him. And the word reviled in the Greek means that they were gnashing their teeth. They were livid. They were visceral. And they said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. And as for this fellow, we know where he is from. Now the man, he's, he's gutsy. Watch this. The man answered the Pharisees and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he's opened my eyes. And now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's actually using scriptural verses. This man was well-versed. He understood this. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and you were teaching us and they cast him out. You're kicked out. Disenfranchised. You no longer have citizenship in our world. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? Now you can imagine the first time he's seen his face, but he hears his voice and he hears him say, do you believe in the son of God? He goes, gosh, that, that voice sounds familiar. Could you say for me, go wash in the pool of Siloam? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you've both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. You know my voice, friend. Then he said, Lord, I believe. This is the first time we see the word kurios. He gives his heart to Christ. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He fell on his face and worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're imposing? Is that what you're insinuating? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. We'll explain that in a moment. But we ask that you would shed light on this passage, that our eyes would be opened and so would our hearts, that we would not only physically see, but spiritually as well. And that hope would return where there was once despair that you would change our hearts. I pray, God, that you would empower by your spirit through the teaching of this passage and your living word. And we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, see, couldn't wait to sit down. I didn't have to say it. So it's the Sabbath day, and Jesus has already been accused once on the Sabbath of healing somebody on the Sabbath when he healed uh, the man at the, the pool of Bethesda who was lame. 
And Jesus healed him and he was ostracized for it and they were angry. Uh, We see that he's already contested and contended with the Pharisees and the Sadducees over the woman who was caught in adultery. We saw that last week. Jesus is creating a firestorm. Uh, The Pharisees have people following him. They're they're tracking him. They want him dead. They're plotting for his death. Um, And yet his popularity is growing and their authority is waning. Now they hold the authority of the highest court in the land. They're going to exercise this authority to silence or attempt to silence him. Uh, anyone who tries to side with Jesus, they're going to use their, their judicial authority to silence uh, them. And we're watching this take place right here. Jesus is walking with his disciples and he passes by. And as he's passing by the southern steps of the temple, he sees this blind man. Now the scripture says he was blind from birth. It's the only time in the scripture where we know that that this man was congenitally blind. He was blind from birth. All the others that were blind, we, we can assume that they were blind from birth. But here the scripture declares that he is congenitally blind. He was blind from birth, probably born without eyes. Probably some something happened and when he was born, He was already blind. It didn't happen through a fever when he was young. He was in the womb, born blind. A congenital defect. Now this brings us into conflict with a holy God and a loving God. And when when I first became a Christian, this is the thing that my family and my friends and those that I would witness to would always thrust at me. How can a loving God allow birth defects? How can a loving God allow children to die? How can a loving God allow wars? How can a loving God allow these things to happen to people in the world? How can an all-powerful God allow sin or sickness to exist? And I would, I'll, I'll... testify that I was trumped and and stumped at those times. But as I've walked with the Lord, I've come to realize that, that sickness exists because sin exists. You see, in the Garden of Eden with the fruit, and we don't know if it was an apple, we don't know if it was a pomegranate, we don't know what it was, but the minute it was opened, every virus, every fungus, every, every disease, every misery hit the earth. And here, this pristine world that was governed by God, all of a sudden, the sin of man is then thrust upon all of creation. Creation groans as sin starts to weave itself in the warp and the woof of the fabric of of the world. And sickness starts to manifest itself, and the gene pool starts to become affected. And all of a sudden, people start to be diseased, and murder comes, and and greed, and, and lust, and all of these things start to destroy humanity. And human beings that were created in the image of God are now being warped and, 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 and destroyed as sin is manifesting itself in this law of entropy as it's destroying, and time is winding down. And God pauses this. And he kicks Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, which is eternal, puts uh, a fiery sword to protect them. And as he does this, he sends them out and he gives them what is called time. Time is grace between the point of one's birth and the point of their death. We're on this earth to be reconciled to God. Our sin is, is upon us. Sin entered through one man, but so did salvation through another. We find in... Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. What Paul is declaring is that through, through Adam, sin entered the world. We're all poisoned with it. It's congenital. David would write, in, in the psalm, Psalm 55, uh, 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And the Jews believed this. And you look at the Mishnah, and, and they would hold to these ideas that there was congenital sin. Uh, the, the way that they would do it would be based on Genesis 4, 7, where 
in 4.7, uh, uh, was speaking of Cain, sin lies at your door. Saying that the, 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 the doors of the womb, sin lies at your door waiting to strike. Speaking of Cain, Cain would murder his brother Abel. They would also go on to say that sin would be imparted by the family as you would see in Genesis 22. Uh, excuse me, Genesis 25, verse 22, with Jacob and Esau in the womb of their mother, and there was a war going on, and she's watching her belly, and, and it would be declared by the, Lord that, by the Lord that two nations are fighting sinful natures. They're fighting within your womb, and this would be the Israeli-Arab conflict today with Jacob and Esau. And the Lord would declare, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. And so they see even in the womb this idea, and they would say that this, 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 this uh, congenital defect could be transferred either by the child's sin or by the parent's sin. Now, in some cases, we can see that where you have fetal alcohol syndrome or you have crack, children, crack babies, and, and, and sin of the parents can be transferred into the children. And we can see this. And, and yet, we look at a world where there's sin and disease and misery. But remember this. That as sin entered through one man, Adam, life and healing came through another man, Jesus Christ. Yes, we're, we're all, we're, we all have a congenital defect in that we've been born into sin in a fallen world. And if we're to remove disease, then we have to remove sin. And if we're to remove sin, we have to remove sinners. But God allows sinners to exist so that they can come to salvation because they've committed cosmic treason and they deserve death and separation from God for all eternity. He allows sinners to exist, thus sin must exist and thus sickness exists. So we're in a fallen world. Yeah, in a fallen world, God can heal and does. There are miraculous stories in the room where people have been healed and we can't describe it. And God can heal in, I can think of four ways in particular. One is, is the body heals itself. Two, the doctors through their wisdom can bring healing. Three, there's a miraculous healing that we can't describe beyond all of our understanding. And fourth is a, a, a healing eternal in the heavens, a brand new body where there's no sin or sickness or sorrow or sadness. The older I get, the more I long for that one. But there are times where God allows sickness to continue. Sometimes it's, it's, it's instructive. Sometimes he allows sickness not only to be instructive, but in some cases, it's a result of our actions. Other times, it's in spite of our actions. It was, it was um, David who wrote in Psalm 119, he said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. He goes on to say that I'll teach sinners repentance. He was in sin. God afflicted him. And then he comes out praising the Lord, following his healing. There are those that were afflicted while they were righteous. The oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. And the reason why I believe God predated Job before Genesis is that if you can wrap your mind around Job, you will have no problem with the rest of the Bible. In Job, you have a man that was more righteous than all the men on the earth. And within a matter of moments, his family was killed, his businesses destroyed, and, and everything he owned was gone, and his body was covered in boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. And, and they, they equate them with shingles. If you've ever had shingles, you know how painful they are. Well, they were shingles all over his body, where he would sit in the town dump with the ashes from, from the burning, and, and he would take a broken pot shard from the refuse that was left in the, in the town dump and, and to find relief he would scrape himself to, to relieve the, the pain of these, these blisters and you'd look and, you'd, and his friends would say obviously you're in this condition because you're a sinner 
His wife would say, curse God and die. And, and Job didn't know why. All he knew is one day I was worshiping the Lord, the next day I lose everything, including my health. Now we know in reading the book that God said, have you considered my servant, uh, uh, my servant Job? When it was Satan who was roaming to and forth, he says, the only reason why he serves you is because you give him stuff. God says, take it away from him. He'll still serve me. That you can come to a place in your life where you can say the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For Job, this was something for all of us to, to grasp and to wrap our mind around. Job would write in Job 19, oh, that my words were written and oh, that they were inscribed in a book. <laughs> they have been. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever, and they have been. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand on the, uh, at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, he's looking at his body riddled with blisters. He says, after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold not another, how my heart yearns within me. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the Old Testament. He had belief that God was loving and God was faithful. And in spite of the, the conditions of a fallen world, he would not stop praising him despite what he was enduring. God doesn't make sense to our temporal minds. For me to describe to you God would be like trying to describe a symphony to a deaf person. For me to describe to you God would be like trying to, to, to describe a sunset to a blind man. He's eternal, we're temporal. His ways are not our ways. And how he can take sin and how he can take sickness and use it together for good and in the midst of us bring us a joy that we could count it all joy in the midst of our trials is only what God can do. It surpasses all understanding. I can't tell you. I don't have the capacity to tell you. I don't know. All I know is in the midst of the trials, if you take your eyes off of those and put them onto him, he will keep the imperfect peace whose mind is steadfast on thee. Now, some of you are saying, well, pastor, that's easy for you to do. You're not going through the trial I'm facing. I have no doubt, but I've had my own. I know what it's like to focus on my problems. I know what it's like to focus on others and on the Lord. I know the joy that comes when I'm other-centered, and I know the emptiness that comes when I'm in, in, internalizing. And as we see this, we come to realize that God is bigger than our issues. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Sometimes God brings a tribulation, a trial, and a sickness to equip you to be a greater servant. Every powerful servant of the Lord has gotten their BSD degree, the backside of the desert. They have gone through misery and they've gone through suffering. And in the midst of that suffering, it's amazing how humble you become. We are prideful. We think we have all the answers we have. And we know how to speak into people's lives. We know how to tell them how to fix it. We know how to, and then we go through it. We're like, I didn't know what the heck I was talking about. All of a sudden, you get a whole new perspective because you are going through a tribulation. You become not only sympathetic, but empathetic. And when you get through to the other side, and even in the midst of it, at least you're further along than the person who's back there, and you're able to tell them, I'm, I'm up further and I can see the light. Hang on. And you're able to pour into their lives because, because God equips you through that tribulation. He comforts you, and then you're able to comfort others with the comfort you yourself have received. There's nothing like being alongside someone who's already been through it. 
I was with a brother in the Lord who, who, who came off of benzos, which are some of the worst drugs imaginable. And that goes on for months as your body's recuperating. And the nightmares and the, and the edginess and, and, and the flashbacks and the anxiety and, and, and you just want to jump out of your skin. And to look and to say, you're drug free. Your body's readjusting. And for him to be able to wrap his mind around that and say, yes. And just based on him holding that, I was able to talk to another brother who was going through it. And I said, I want to tell you, this is where you are. And that comforted that person. And I haven't even been through that. I've been through the, the opiate issue, but I've never been through the benzo issue. And you get through to the other side and you can say there's hope. And you start to empathize and walk through this valley of the shadow of death with them. God is considering you worthy to equip you to be a minister into deeper capacities. And, and you go through the trial and you can say, you know, why God? Don't say Why? Say what? What do you want me to learn? What do you, what do you want me to do? What, who do you want me to minister to? Don't say, why me, God? Say, why not me? Thank you for considering me worthy. Now, some of you would be hurt by that, and I don't mean to trivi- trivialize it. But God has called you. Listen, there are days I want to quit the ministry. Just like there's days whatever ministry God's called you to, you want to call it a day. I remember going into the closed session after the long council meeting thinking, what did I win? (laughs) What have I done? But to realize I know why I'm here. God is equipping you. He's preparing you. And so we see this and we see what God wants to do. And and, and as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things for which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What God is saying to us through his word is, get a perspective. Can you imagine going through this trial without the Lord? It's some cosmic accident in the universe and you have just been struck and you don't have any answers and there is no redeeming nature in it and there's no purpose in it. What an empty, heartless, miserable existence that would be. Why wouldn't you take your life? Why wouldn't you declare and and lobby for physician-assisted suicide? But in a world where there is a God And there is a purpose, and the context of it and the perspective of it changes everything. You're being equipped to minister in a deeper capacity. Well, I don't want this. Our life is not our own. We've been purchased with a price. He's enlisted you. The gifts and the calling of the Lord are irrevocable. Look at Nathan Press. He may not want to be a minister, but doggone it, he's going to (laughs) be. And so here... The question is put before Jesus by the disciples and and I've gotten through two verses and I have 14 minutes to finish the other 40. (laughs) And I will do it. Jesus told them that's not the sin of the parents. He basically pointed out in verses three, four, and five, my father has orchestrated this to open the eyes of the blind. This is an event that this man's life will be used for God's glory and to lead people to the light that they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. 
Now, they can't fathom this idea. Is it congenital? Was it your parents? Was it you? And he said these things. And when Jesus said these things in the presence of this blind man, and he'd been blind since birth, probably born without eyes. His eye sockets were, I remember seeing Rick, who used to attend our church, his eyes were completely gone. And, and, and this is the case. 30 years he'd been at, 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 at the southern steps, begging. Everyone knew he was blind. There's no doubt about it. And at that moment, Jesus reaches down and he grabs some dirt. Actually, he spit into the dirt. Come on up, stop. No, I'm just kidding. And I won't do it. But I, I love the way it's written. He spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And then they use this word, and he anointed. Now we have this beautiful silver thing up here where we do anointing oil and it's a little dab and it smells good. It's fragrance. We're changing here at Calvary Chapel. Now it's going to be my spit and dirt. No one will come up for anointing. But it says he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. He's like... Now, it's not just saliva. This is the Sabbath. He's fasting. Have you been around someone who hadn't eaten? Their breath is skanky. I don't know if that's the right word. Nasty. Forgive me. I, I meant it in all clarity. But he, it's, you know, the bile and the, it's just, and Jesus is like just trying to muster up some spit. Just, and he can't quite get it, so he's, He takes that finger and he's. And he's making a plaster, a little paste. It's got a, it's got a smear. <laughs> and you can imagine the blind man just. And, and, and the finger comes up and he heard the conversation and he's trying to get a theological bearing on what this man's talking about. It sounds theological. And all of a sudden his eyes are touched and dirt's being rubbed in. And he thinks there's something significant about this. And he's just rubbing it in there. Right into the, the ducks. And what happens when you get dirt in, in your eyes? You he said, what have you done? And he's just got that deep in there. He's, and he, the blind man has no idea why it's moist. He may have heard the, but he doesn't know. Everyone else is like, ah. There were other times where, you know, Jesus healed a man who was deaf. And he's like. Little wet willies. He did that. Read it. It's in Mark. I am dead serious. And so he rubs this into his eyes, and you think he takes the dirt that he created. He takes the dirt that he created man from, the dust of the earth, and he adds his DNA, his saliva. Makes a paste, a mortar. Now the Mishnah said, 
And the Jewish law said, by the Shabbat, the Sabbath laws, you couldn't make mortar, you couldn't spit on the ground, you could spit on a rock, but not on the ground, you could stop someone from bleeding, but you couldn't set a bone. They had thousands of rules for the Sabbath. And he puts a, a plaster together, he puts a mortar together that you'd put brick together, and he puts it in the man's eyes, and he rubs it in there. And he says, he didn't even really have to tell it, the guy's probably running, but he says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he's like, He's like, where's the pool? Where's the where's the pool? Running into people, and the pool of Siloam is sent. I just sent him. Yeah, you did. Thanks. And he's running. So he went and he washed. He's just rubbing the just just all the. You've ever gotten sand in your eyes and you're just trying to get it out and you're getting the water and he's doing this and something's different. There's there's light. What are these? These are fingers. This is water. Color. What is color? He's never seen before. Just, what is this? And voices of people he recognized, he can see their faces. Mom! Dad! Now, eyes are receptacles, but they're also projectors. You can speak to somebody with your eyes. Stop, honey. (laughs) He projects with his eyes amazement. Just, he's projecting while he's receiving all at the same time. Astonished. And and, and and it says that he he washes and he comes back seeing. And each voice that he has recognized because he has a hypersensitivity to sound, he hears her voice and he, Joe, Ezra, Saul, Henry, Mom, dad, sister. He comes back, he's just running back and he's, he's blown away. And as he's coming back and he's, he's weaving through the crowd, most people are getting out of the way. He's, it's okay, excuse me. Oh, it's okay, excuse me. And they're looking and they're seeing his eyes and they're seeing, and he's, he's greeting them by name. And the neighbors that previously had seen that he was blind said, is this not the, the beggar who sat? The blind beggar? And some said, it is him, it is him. He's like, yeah, it's me. How you doing? You're ugly. Hey, I didn't know that you were white. You're black. What's black? I didn't know colors. And, and everything is just new. And he's running through the, the crowds and, and others said, it can't be him. It looks like him, but it's not him. The other guy's eyes are all withered. His sockets were all imploded. It can't be him. He's like, no, it is me. Verse 9, it's me. And then they said to him, how were your eyes opened? How did this happen? This is long before we've ever had ophthalmologists and long before we've ever had surgery. This doesn't make any, we've never seen this in the history of the world. How did your eyes get opened? He answered and said, well, a man called Jesus, he's never met him. I've only heard his voice. I don't know where he is or who he is. He was up at the southern steps. I ran down the pool because he told me to. I'm going back to see if he's there. But his name was Jesus. That's all I know. A man named Jesus made clay. Didn't say anything about the spit. I don't know how he made the clay. And everyone's like, we do. (laughs) He anointed my eyes with spit. He said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and and I received my sight. I can see. And they said to him, where is he? 
He says, I don't know. I don't know where he is. Bummer. At that moment, they go, well, isn't this special? It's the Sabbath. And this Jesus has already pulled this stunt once before with the person with the mat that rolled up at the pool of Bethesda. He has a little thing with pools. And we're just going to march your little behind over to go meet the Pharisees. Come with me, mister. And they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. And it was the Sabbath when Jesus had made the clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. He goes, all right, second time. He put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. I explained it the same way the first time. It hasn't changed. And then some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. You can imagine the blind guy who hasn't been able to see since birth for 30 years is mesmerized, projecting joy, and hears these words like, what? What are you, what? The Sabbath? He's, he's not from God because he healed me? What is wrong with you people? Really? You're using the law for what purpose? What are you, what are you saying? You're rejecting a healing or the ability to heal? I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. Angola prison, David Lane has taken a number of folks, David and City Lane take a number of folks to Angola prison in Louisiana. Had the highest murder rate of any penitentiary in the United States. They put together, the, the warden put together a seminary in Angola prison. They began to plant churches in each of the wards of the, semin, of the, of the penitentiary. Murders have ended. You can walk through Angola prison and no one touches you. To the, to the contrary, they say, praise the Lord. How can I pray for you? We had dinner at Governor Jindal's house. We were sitting down having dinner and inmates from Angola prison were serving us. They had access to hatchets and knives in the kitchen. They could have done anything they wanted. They could have taken the, the, the uh, governor's mansion over. And they love the Lord. And it was, it was Dennis Prager who was leaving and, and David Lane said, how do, you, how do you feel about that? And he says, I'm angry. And David said, why are you angry, Dennis? He said, I'm angry because we found the cure as it were, for cancer, or we found the cure for recidivism, and because it's faith-based, it's rejected. And here, this is faith-based, and they reject it. No! It doesn't follow our rules! Where is he? I don't know, and the Pharisees are angry. This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He's like, is this a test? Is it a quiz? Uh, he's a prophet? But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he'd been blind and received his sight. I've been faking it for 30 years and I sucked my eyeballs into my sockets with a congenital defect. You'll go to any length so as not to give God glory. (laughs) And then 
they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked the parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And they've been brought before the black robes, the judicial magistrate, the highest court in the land. And they're being called to testify and give an oath under penalty of perjury and banishment from the community and the nation. And they're standing in front of the highest law, the highest court in the land. And they said, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. I mean, everybody in the town knows that. I think you do too, but I don't know why we're having this conversation. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. I mean, we've heard it's Jesus, but we don't want to say anything. We don't know who opened his eyes. Uh, we just don't know that fully. We can assume. I mean, everybody's shouting Jesus, but we don't want to say anything because you're scary. <laughs> and then they go, they, they deflect it. He's of age. Ask him. And this guy's like, back to me again. <laughs> All right. And they say, he'll speak for himself. He's, he's not mute. <laughs> he was blind, but he wasn't mute. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue. You'd be lost in, in, in the nation of Israel. You'll be banished. You'll be a second-class citizen. You'll, you'll lose your rights. Let's just put a yellow star on you. You want to give glory to God? You really want to stand? And they were scared. Most people are scared. And they were paralyzed. They didn't know what to do. I think most reason why people don't engage in the process is they're scared. And you know what? It is scary. And it's hard. Hardest thing I've ever been a part of. Frightening. Overwhelming. But just because it's frightening doesn't mean we're not supposed to be a part of it. A church is comfortable. You can be bold behind the pulpit, but Step out, testify. Go into the Supreme Court. Go into the highest levels of the civic world and testify. Let's see if your faith holds up. Your faith will be challenged. It'll be tested. You'll have to give a ready answer. They're going to put him on the spot. He has been brought in front of them. Hello? So they again called the blind man and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And what they're saying to him is, you're under oath, and you will, this is perjury. You will go to jail. We will sue you to oblivion. You will lose your business. You'll lose everything. You give glory to God. You're done. You are under oath. Do you know you're putting your hand on the Bible? We are the highest court of the land. Our authority reaches to the outer edges of this nation, and you mess with us, and you're done. Now. What do you say? He answered and said, well, whether Christ is a sinner or not, I don't know. Whether he, Jesus, is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. And then they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He's like, oh man. 
okay, I was blind. I think you guys are deaf. He says, I told you already, and you don't listen. Pay attention. Put on your listening ears. Why do you want to hear it again? Hello? And he goes, wait, do you also want to become disciples? Wrong answer. Do you, do you, guys, do you guys want to do it too? You guys? At that moment, they reviled him. They were livid. Whenever anyone almost comes to Christ, they're the most angry just before they surrender. That's what I've noticed. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple. We are Moses' disciples. We live by the law. And the law is a law of the land. And we're never wrong. We are the Supreme Court. (laughs) And we know they always get that right. They legalize slavery. Oh, wait. They got that miserably wrong. They enslaved other human beings based on the color of their skin, and they said that was legal? 70 million babies have been aborted since 1973. That's legal. But they're the highest court in the land. Of which do they rule? Where do they get their basis? Well, it's power. It's power. You are his disciple. We are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. Hmm. I love the man's answer. He's finally got a backbone. He had one all along, but he stands up. He says, why, this is a marvelous thing. He's projecting with his eyes. This is a marvelous thing. (laughs) That you do not know where he's from. Yet he's opened my eyes. Look. Now we know that God does not hear sinners and he's going through a whole theological dissertation based on Isaiah 35, Isaiah 29, going through Psalm 34. He has sat at the steps of the southern gate. He knows all of their theology and he's laying out a case for them. I don't have time to describe it to you. He says now that we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who has been born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing but look what he's done. Isn't this cool? And they answered and said, you are completely born in sins and you're trying to teach us. Get out. You know why? There's two thoughts. There's a world that's governed by God and one that isn't. And if you've rejected God, your power is what holds you. And you're fighting not us who believe in God. You're fighting God. You're angry at the messenger. And you, you, you shake your fist. And you're losing. And you can't stop it. And what kind of a life do you have? What is the point of your suffering? Cosmic chaos that you are a a creature of some primordial soup by chance? That here you are and there's no purpose or reason? There's no absolutes, there's no God, there's no love? What a sad world. All because you don't want God to tell you the same thing he's told all of us, that we're wrong. 
and that our sin has to go. My sin isn't any worse than yours, and yours isn't any worse than mine, but it's got to go. And our lives must be brought into submission to his will and his purposes. We can either reject that and declare ourselves Lord of this little dirt-filled sphere in the midst and the mass of a universe that we can't even comprehend. Or we can see that we have been created in the image of God and they're angry and they cast them out. We are the authority in this land and you're done. Well, you're only the authority as long as your lungs are moving and your heart is beating and the clock is ticking. And hell awaits those who reject God. And I wouldn't wish hell on my worst enemy to the point where Christians go into the darkest, most miserable sections of the world to pull them back from the gates of hell. And light goes into the deepest parts of the darkness to bring them back, to open their eyes spiritually to save them. No one spoke of hell more than Jesus because he didn't want anyone to go there. And for anyone to get to hell, they have to step over the cross of Christ and, and, and denounce a savior. I am Lord of my life. And, and to describe hell, hell is banishment from God. Whatever God is, hell isn't. Whatever hell is, God isn't. And here they've cast him out. And Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And so he goes to find him to bring him in. He said to him, do you believe in the son of God? I can imagine that moment. He, he comes, he sees this man, he's drawn to his face. I don't know how Jesus looked at him, but Jesus sees him. He says, do you believe in the son of God? And you can imagine this man, your voice, your voice. Can you say this for me? Can you say, wash in the pool of Siloam? Are you him? He says, do you believe in the son of God? And the man answered, who is he? Lord, that I, I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you've both seen him and it's he who is talking with you now. You've, you've known my voice, now you see my face. At that moment, he said, kurios, which means Lord, which means worshipful Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He fell on his face and gave the, entire, gave the entirety of his life over to him. Even though he'd been kicked out of the kingdom, even though he'd been kicked out of the community, even though he'd been ostracized in the nation, even though he got the yellow star on his jacket, he was worshiping the Lord. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who may see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Is that what you're saying? Are you insinuating that God has declared what we do is wrong? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. You have seen all this. You've taken it in, yet you still reject it. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of the darkness of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Nobody tells me what I do. 
Well, you may hold the highest court in the land. And you may subject yourselves or put the boot on those that disagree. But you have no power. And the authority you've been granted was given by God. And that authority that is now exercising suffering for others of us, the suffering we'll endure will better equip us to minister to the ones that bring that suffering. We're not the moral majority, we're the silent minority. And the darker it is, the more we shine. You can be like the man's parents and not want to stand and deflect it to somebody else. Or you can be like the man who was healed, both physically and spiritually, and stand and say, do with me as you will. But this I know, I once was blind physically and spiritually, and that man over there, Jesus Christ, is my Messiah and my healer. And I will go to the ends of the earth to declare it. And you can do with me as you please but I love you and I will never be silent because you need to know this because this is the only hope on this fallen planet for any healing whatsoever. And that is your calling and mine. But don't do it in pride. Do it in love. Speak the truth in love and be bold yet tender. And may God equip you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you're faithful to equip us. Lord, we're not in despair. We're not afraid. God, you're in complete control. And even this temporary affliction, this trial, is to further equip us to serve you, to awaken us from our apathy, that we wouldn't be afraid, that we would be emboldened, and we'd be like the man who had lived 30 years in blindness and then all of a sudden we're awakened to our calling and we say, Kyrios, Lord, and worship you with our lives. Regardless of the consequences, we'll be bolder than ever. Lord, let us not be afraid. You haven't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Love, love. Servants. A servant speaks when they're spoken to and they offer their opinion when they're asked. They speak truth to power. And they do it lovingly and faithfully and fearlessly, but not in pride, in humility. And so, God, we thank you. Bless us now according to your riches in Christ that we would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. amen. Let's stand and close with a song of praise and worship.